Hi there. I'm Keith Cauley, and this is Thrive, a Bridgestone Americas podcast where we explore our company through compelling conversations with teammates across our organization. Some of our recent episodes have talked about the world of manufacturing, where we are focused on leveraging innovative thinking and cutting-edge technologies to maximize performance and sustainability in delivering those values of our Bridgestone E8 commitment. Today, we're talking green manufacturing, with a focus on future sustainability targets that have been set and the initiatives being implemented throughout our Bridgestone operations to help achieve them. We're joined by Greg Harris and Nick Ramis, who represent a growing cross-functional collaboration between our environmental and manufacturing teams to drive increasingly positive environmental impact in energy, ecology, and beyond. We hope you enjoy this conversation. Well, we are joined today by two leaders in our environmental and our manufacturing space. We're going to talk green manufacturing, some of the initiatives that are taking place uh, across the Bridgestone America's footprint in our different facilities, but all laddering up to this collective objective and goal that we're working on uh, tied to E8, tied to our strategy around sustainability and really serving society. So introducing across the table first for me, Greg Harris, Vice President of Manufacturing Engineering at Bridgestone Americas. Greg, thanks for joining us. You're welcome. Glad to be here. Yeah. And here in the middle is Nick Ramis, Executive Director of Environmental Affairs for Bridgestone Americas. Nick, thanks for coming by. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So we're going to dive into a wide-ranging array of green environmental uh, sustainability topics. But before we get to that point, again, love to start with a little bit of background. Vice President of Manufacturing Engineering, Greg, how do you get into that role? What's your journey been to this point in Bridgestone and beyond? Well, I don't know if you have enough time to cover my entire journey. I've oh, got... Uh, we can go all the way we need to here. It's an open medium. It's great. I'm, I'm well-seasoned and <laughs> aged, I guess, might be. So, you know, interesting, actually, as a 16-year-old, started in Firestone retail operations. Ah, so I okay. actually worked in a Firestone retail store and uh, changed tires, repaired tires, changed brakes, did mufflers, alignments. I actually uh, drove uh, what we'd call a, a, a truck, the field truck. So mm -hmm. you'd go out in the, fact, or the farms and repair the tires on the farm, et cetera. So that's how I got started. And then I went to college. After college, I went to work for a major manufacturer of valves and then uh, went to work for a company called Bandag Incorporated. Oh, which we've talked about it a little bit here, a sure. A little bit, so hopefully the Bridgestone family is well aware of Bandag. <laughs> and uh, I spent close to 22 years uh, okay. in Bandag. All the way, started in my career in, in Abilene, Texas, uh, basically in operations, also in maintenance. Did a tour of duty in supply chain. And in supply chain was involved with customer service, international customer service, uh, freight, uh, LTL, both in TL, ocean freight, <laughs> basically everything from scheduling from the plant perspective, uh, spent 10 years in scheduling. So that was great experience. Did a tour of duty in leading the engineering team for Bandag, and of course they were a global company. Mm -hmm. And then uh, later had the opportunity to uh, lead the retread manufacturing organization. And at some point in time uh, there in about 07, Bridgestone bought us, mm -hmm. and then I became an acquired asset for Bridgestone. So. And <laughs> Getting very technical so. in those terms there, yeah. indeed. Yes, happily, valuable assets. <laughs> happily so. And from there then, uh, here the last seven years, been in Nashville. So Barry Owens asked me to come down, and I had the privilege 
to lead the commercial manufacturing group for about five years. The last two years, I've been leading the manufacturing engineering group, which is really the subset. Sometimes you may have heard of what we call PSD or PED. It's both those organizations within the BAMG manufacturing team. Gotcha. So 29 years with the company. Glad to be here. Well, it's a lot of times we hear about people starting early. You start in high school with Firestone, but that's not the normal trajectory, right? You go away. You were with Bandag when it wasn't Bridgestone and somehow find your way back full circle. It's a a nice little journey there. I like it. Nick, what about you? What's been your path and and your focus now uh, after uh, up to that path in your current role? Yeah, yeah. So I, you know, the environmental has been pretty much my whole career. Um, I've only been with Bridgestone since July of 19. Okay. So pretty recent. I like to still consider myself new because, you know, when I came here (laughs) in 19, you're starting to get to know people. And then we all know what happened in 2020. And so then you kind of got to adapt and you've got to adjust and learn. But, you know, prior to coming to Bridgestone, I spent 23 years with General Motors all through environment. I did do a couple years in manufacturing. So mm-hmm. I was a gear geometry. I was in, it was quite a challenge, I will tell you. But I think the the perspective of manufacturing is a great thing to get, right? Especially when you're, when you're doing environment, you got to understand what you're building and, and what you're making. But, you know, through the, through the course, it's, it's pretty much environmental work. So it's air, water, waste, multimedia. The sustainability aspect of it is really something that has kind of been coined as I think we've taken ground with environment and really getting environment into the business. Fortunately, at the, towards kind of the end of my, uh, before I left the company, I was able to spend uh, a good couple of years in public policy. Mm-hmm. And so the policy work was great because you're, you're you know, more so on the manufacturing side, uh, uh, new and pending regulations, you know, what's going to impact our company, what's going to impact the environment, yeah. what we can do to either know it's coming or at least have some idea something's coming so we can prepare. Yeah. And then, like I said, so in in uh, summer of 19, I was uh, uh, moved to Nashville and it's been fantastic ever since. Yeah. Great company. Well, welcome. And I, I think that's an, always an interesting aspect. We talk a lot about the sustainable sides of the products that we make. We're going to talk about the, the process of manufacturing and operations a little bit today. But then the policy side is this other component that always adds into the bigger equation. And it's not just reacting. It's being able to anticipate or see the things coming to be able to get ahead because it's hard to move a ship of this size very quickly, right? Absolutely. you got to be able to plan and, and advance. But as so as we get into, I guess, the, the meat of the topic today, which we recently had some episodes and some guests focus on. You know, we've talked about Enlighten in this business and the product strategy that is tied to sustainability and performance. We we had some guests for manufacturing about smart manufacturing. So some of the tools that are really, you know, evolving, transforming some of the environment and how we train, how we automate, how we process the operations differently using technology. And so today is more green uh, manufacturing. Our leaders have talked about accelerating this with obviously huge impacts in sustainability and elsewhere around the company. So if we level set at the start, maybe what is green manufacturing? Since I, I got here, one of the first things I noticed is is the commitment to the mission. So I, I think for us knowing what that is and, and embracing it, it helps us define what green manufacturing is because I, I think when you're when you're talking about uh, valuing natural resources in harmony with nature yeah. and CO two, it it really brings it's it's that that piece that we're using as our guide for manufacturing in 2020. 
we as Bridgestone came out with Milestone 2030. And and to me, for, you know, it's a, another sustainability report, but I don't think that it was. I, I think it was kind of an epic start. Uh, Milestone 2030 changed things that for this company directionally that we typically didn't do, mm-hmm. or at least we didn't make commitments in such a, a, a way that we have. Water stewardship planning right, is, is a big one that we did. Our biodiversity program is another huge one that we did. But even now, though, this, the focus on CO2, having that, that milestone 2030 lead that green manufacturing, I think that's kind of what it means to me, yeah. you know. If we, I think we're going to have references across this, maybe to scope one, scope two. These are kind of terms. There's a scope three, right? Things that are terms in this sustainability or the environmental sustainability space. I guess if you were going to explain this to somebody who doesn't know what that is, what's scope one, scope two, just to level set as we go? When we talk about scope one, it's really, I think, easiest way for us to know about that it's what we burn, right? It's it's the natural gas that comes into the facility. It's what we use to run our, our boilers, whatever it is. It's what we burn in our facility. And we have to measure the, there's, there's, you know, math that we use and we can calculate what the scope uh, one is. The scope two is what we buy. So this is the electricity that's, that's provided to us from the, you know, electric producers and, and they may be uh, creating it, burning natural gas. They may be creating it using nuclear energy, whatever it may be. That's the emissions that whatever comes off of that could be coal is our scope two. So we have to look at that for the energy that we buy and the, what we burn in our facility to come up with that. And then you also mentioned uh, the scope three, that's pretty much everything else. <laughs> you know, it's everything upstream from, from what we purchase, from our suppliers. It's, it's our product in use downstream. It's actually the largest contributor to the, to the CO2, the, to the footprint that we could be involved with that we have. Yeah. And I know we've got, right, we, we've set, you said 2030, milestone 2030, but we've also put those firm goals out there related to those two areas, right, for 2050 is CO2 reduction or uh, CO2 neutrality. That's correct. And then complete 100% sustainable materials. And so it's all kind of part of all of this. I, I guess one scope one very clearly, and then the other is the, uh, the everything else kind correct. of Correct. So, yes, in um, milestone 2030 introduced that we were going to be 50% total absolute CO2, scope one and two. We talked about that, what we buy and burn by 2030 and aspire to be carbon neutral by 2050. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, since then, we have a 2023 number that was public and we were 30% is this year. And we also announced uh, 2026 will be 40% okay. um, and on our way to 2030 and then on our way ultimately to the carbon neutrality in 2050. Yeah. Well, and we talk, I think people who've been around the manufacturing space at all or worked with people in manufacturing, they know that it's about streamlining operations. The environmental stewardship has always been a huge part of this and sustainability in general. So I guess, Greg, when we we talk about the environmental concepts at that large stage, the vision of the company, but then how do we get that objective set from the manufacturing and operations? Like, I guess, how do you make plans, set plans, and put into action initiatives that start to contribute to stuff like this? From a manufacturing point of view, As we take a hard look at what does this mean, we've always been focused on conversion of raw materials into a finished good and doing that economically and at the same time with the precision of quality to produce a Dantatsu product. Mm -hmm. And then this allows, or I should say this provides us a curve that we had to stop and say, hold on, 
you're trying to change how we manufacture. And when we think about scope one and scope one being everything we burn, what does that look like? How big is it? We didn't truly have that at line item detail understanding. And when we understood scope two, we, we had it at aggregate. We, we understand all of it at an aggregate mm-hmm. number. But if you're to specifically attack each of those scope one and scope two, you have to have definitive plans. You have to create line item detail to understand how you're going to move that needle. Mm-hmm. And that's really what we've been working on. A lot of activity taking place there. And I think we, we'll, have, we'll have time later on maybe sure. to explore a little bit more of that. But significant effort for us to be very purposeful in seeking to understand how do we move the needle. Because you can do a lot and still not move the needle relative yeah. to CO2. Yeah. Well, I think when we talk about manufacturing and you talk about people that are dedicated to continuing to optimize process, right? And so there's all of these situations and, and operations and initiatives around different parts of manufacturing. Is it hard then to get people's mindset around this, the environmental or sustainability projects on that? Because it's really just a new problem for them to solve and they all kind of can attack it with the same mindset? Or did it take a little bit of, hey, we got to learn about this collectively to get buy-in to go chase these things? Yeah. So I'd say that's still a work in progress, right? So from a corporate level, again, our relationship that we got with the environmental team is is strong. We've got people at the corporate level also dedicated to help us understand each avenue. So Mm -hmm. scope two being predominantly electricity, we've got a person that's really an expert in electricity working with me directly, working with Jason Menino, et cetera, to understand our options going forward. And they work directly with the plants. So they're kind of holding hands in regards to saying, here's what we're seeing. At the same time, from what we, when we talk about what we burn, we're really talking about natural gas. Mm-hmm. And in our plants, our natural gas consumption is usually in one of a couple things. In the cold areas, it's for heat. Right, You might be using natural gas for for direct gas-fired heaters. But at the same time, we use natural gas to create steam. And steam is used in the curing process within our factories. So we have people that are boiler house experts that are helping us understand the different avenues to move forward to generate steam, the different avenues to uh, actually take a look at how would you produce HVAC heating versus a normal direct gas-fired method. (laughs) And those are the the engineering challenges that, you know, a lot of them are are intrigued by and they go after. But to tell you that we have this solved would be a misconception. (laughs) It's going to be a minute. Yeah, It's going to be a minute is right. (laughs) What we do know is the magnitude of this opportunity uh, ahead of us is big. Yeah. And at the same time, we're talking millions of dollars of investment as we go forward to take our plants and basically really at the heart of the infrastructure – retune them, rebuild them to where then we can use sustainable energy. Yeah. Well, and I think as as we talk about some of these different examples, I think you both have great probably perspective from each side to add on some of the things. Uh, leaders were sharing a little bit at a high level in some of our recent town halls, but a, a short list of, of some of these things that we can try to make some of these concepts more tangible to the listeners, maybe starting with water conservation and reuse, right? There's a couple of different initiatives, but, and of course, every plant 
is slightly different, right? There's a lot of where we try to have, you know, some similarities across, but at the same time, locations are different, people are different, we're in across different countries. But as we talk about maybe water conservation and reuse, what's happening there? Yeah, and and that's that's one that you know even pre. Milestone 2030, mm-hmm. the companies have been trying to reduce water usage for a lot. I mean, water is an expense. Water is mm-hmm. a natural resource. We can look at it any way we want to. But, you know, anytime it's just like cutting electricity, uh, uh, re- reducing air leaks, anything with water. But I think it was pretty clear in Milestone 2030, the, the company's objective for water, and it was to be a water steward, right? We're not just using it because we can, we're using it because we need to, and let's the assess the amount that we have. So in the water stewardship planning portion of it, uh, we, were, we were really looking at the quantity we use and the way in which we use it, but we also want to make sure that we're addressing areas that are stressed, right? So we're putting that into priority. So one of the, some of the things you talked about, some of the tangible things that we can do or you can look at, there, there's quite, actually, there's, there's some pretty fascinating things. So we do some um, rainwater harvesting, mm-hmm. which is, you know, if it rains, how can we use this water? So some of the sites in Aiken we've got where they're actually harvesting millions and millions, hundreds of millions of gallons of water mm-hmm. and to be able to use that in the process. So that's at a larger scale. Mm-hmm. But if you break it down, there's also a lot of really creative things going on. So the one that came to mind uh, is in Argentina, right? So they're using, we have to use uh, reverse osmosis or RO water. And when you create RO, it's, it's I'm not sure if it's like four to one or five five to one uh, reduction, but that water is really not usable anymore. And typically what you do is you just discharge it. So what the site's doing is what can we do to actually reuse this water? If we can use it on site, great, but I know that they're supplying it to a local concrete company and they're using it in their process. So that that adds to that other Bing word like circular economy, right? Yeah. What can we have and what can we show and what can we do with that, that water that goes out? So that's really, I think, on the usage. But the big point of this is also... What are we doing to reduce the amount of water? We've talked a little bit when we talk about emissions, right? So energy harvesting, CO2 reduction is another big focus area. We talk about it in our products. We talk about it in partnerships that we found in some of this material circularity space. But obviously in our own operations, how do we go about attacking this? So interesting, when you talk about energy harvesting, so we actually have a couple locations where we have solar uh, fields Mm -hmm. in place. And it takes a fairly large solar field to generate a significant amount of, of, of energy. Sure. So for example, a large solar field, maybe it's equivalent to 2.4 megawatts. One windmill can create 2.4 megawatts. So to help you understand that, it takes acres of solar field where theoretically, if I can put a windmill in, I can use the vertical heights to help me with that. And we may be able to put two windmills in in those same acres. But all that being stated, it's not always windy and everywhere, right? We're not necessarily <laughs> yep. in Chicago. So all those things being given, we do have two two plants that are active in regards to large solar fields that are helping us in regards to that. So that's a direct harvest. We talked a little bit around uh, water harvesting that was just mentioned, so we're doing that. But at the same time as we go forward to try to understand really scope one, scope two, even scope three, what are we doing in regards to those? From a manufacturing point of view, our primary concern is scope one and two. Yeah. And... Uh, 
really is a scope two aspect we're leveraging purchasing to help us significantly. Because usually these are long-term contracts that we're interested in. And it might be a, a PPA, which is a purchase power agreement. And that could be something where I enter with a third party to come on online and maybe they put the solar field in at their expense and then I have a 10 or a 20 year contract with them. That's a option. The other option, if you think about it, they can put a solar field above the parking lot. Hmm. So you can park your car under these today and it actually provides you sunshade, et cetera. So those are some things that we can do, but the size of those solar fields are not enough to operate our plants, okay? So the only way we're really going to be able to do this is to get involved with industrial-sized, what we'd call renewable energy. Mm-hmm. Our, our plant in, in Canada, for example, is hydropower. It's 99.99% CO2-free on the electricity side. Oh, wow. So their emissions is really only from direct-fired gas. Now, if we tell them, hey, you can't burn gas anymore, they said, well, we're going to freeze, right? We are in Canada, <laughs> and we have snow still today. It's Som- cold in Joliet. Yeah. Sometimes <laughs> it melts in July, and we get it back in, in you know September. So we our challenge in those areas is trying to figure out Although we have CO2-free energy, how do we offset the gas piece, which is a challenge, right? The other thing that's important to know is 75% of our plants are in regulated areas. And when I say regulated, I mean they're government-controlled producers of energy. Hmm. So Tennessee is a regulated market. So in order to work with a regulated market, you've got the bureaucracy and you've got the longer lead times in order to make that work. So it's not a quick response. It's going to take multiple years for us to be able to put things in place. For example, in Tennessee, uh, in partnership with Tennessee Valley about how do we bring in green energy? It's not that we can just go buy it and implement it. We actually have to work. You have to develop it. So some of this is going to be a slow multi-year process. Because there's only so much we can actually control, right? Correct, correct. Now, we can influence, and and they're great partners. Uh, It's just it takes time, even with the lead time. If you had an agreement today, it could take 18 months to get the components. Then you got to install it. you got to bring it on live. You could be easily two years before you get the benefit. Another one that I think maybe some people have heard more of than others, depending on location and and the plants that have different programs, is with biodiversity. We've got some really cool local programs in some of our communities that maybe partner with schools or maybe partner with community you know, education programs. But it's another aspect of this whole environmental mission that we're on. Uh, what are some of maybe the examples or some things that stand out in biodiversity? I think biodiversity is something that we're going to see really creeping up more in this whole, what they call nature positive uh, focus. So tangibly, I I think our company has been uh, very involved in biodiversity for for many years. I mean, you can see it at the plants. Mm-hmm. Um, you can see it. I mean, we we have local uh, facilities that are 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 doing teaching, you know, um, educational outreach because it's not biodiversity is not just about I'm going to plant this or I'm going to get a butterfly garden. I'm going to do whatever it's going to be. It's also outreach. It it has to do with are you educating on environment? What's going on there? But you know, some big ones that that Bridgestone and I think that we are are known for is 
Centennial, Firestone Centennial, mm-hmm. that's 10,000 acres donated from this company to the state, right? And and what are they going to do? It's hunting, it's fishing, it's preservation, it's entrusting, right? So trust, it is entrusting whoever's going to take that property that they're going to manage it as such for forever, yeah. right? And we're, we're not going to be deforesting. This is real environmental, right? So um, second to that, in 2018, and I was coming in just after it, and it's still a big deal. I mean, it's exciting to see the Chestnut Mountain. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you've ever been there, it's a, it's a fantastic place. And I, I offer to a lot of people to get with the this. This was 6,000 acres that was donated to the Nature Conservancy. And this is something that, that it's not taken for granted. And it's a very, very, very positive uh, move for environment. I mean, we're doing things at the plan as well. Warren probably uh, stands out the most for the uh, outreach that they do basically with the uh, local schools and at the same time uh, the nature area that they have to teach that in the local school systems. The actual instructors come to Warren and the school teachers and have that uh, program there. So it's it's that partnership that we do. But each plant has a version mm-hmm of that as we go forward. It's just Warren happens to have the property space and, and availability that it's been very, very successful. Yeah. And I know we just celebrated our Bridgestone America's awards from the prior year in 2022. Joliet just built this beautiful new state-of-the-art automated high-rise warehouse that was a, a great project that was celebrated. But one of the reasons they did that design vertically was to protect the wetlands around their property. And it was such a huge objective for them. They said they didn't have to take out a single tree. They had the whole design built around maintaining that because as you said, the plants all have their different geographical footprint, but they all have the commitment to protecting it the best they can. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Well, I guess, you know, as we move forward right into the future, you know, scope one, scope two, we talked about scope three is like everything else. And we've got a lot of task force, but a lot of things in motion because you're tackling a lot at once. But what are some of maybe the next things on the horizon that you're really exploring, looking into more, or excited about getting after from from either of your areas, I guess, as we continue towards 2030 and then towards the larger thing in 2050? I'd say next steps for us, there's still a lot to be understood on scope three. So Really, scope three, when you look at the magnitude and the size and what it brings back to the company, it's really around having Dantatsu product, Mm -hmm. best performance. And at the same time, because of its impact five times or greater than what we actually are able to save or do in manufacturing, uh, it then has a lasting uh, impact as we go forward into the market. So in order for us to be able to, to create or produce that product, we have to have the capability in manufacturing to produce it. So there's things you may have heard the term Enlighten used multiple mm-hmm. times. Enlighten, of course, is not only a technology stack, but also how we go forward. But I'm concerned about the technology stack because <laughs> I got to make the tire, right? <laughs> so tied to that, there's things like tandem, you know, mixers. Yeah. All those things are in play. And we've actually been working those for multiple years. But we can't achieve our long-term vision without significant change within manufacturing. We have a lot in play that we're very proud of as manufacturing team and at the same time proud for Bridgestone to be able to to do it. But there's also some far-reaching things that are non-standard. So you mentioned Joliet and you mentioned the fact that they were looking at, you know, basically what are we going to do with an automated warehouse? And we went vertical instead of, you know, horizontal. But at the same time, we, we talked about the fact that it gets cold in Joliet and they need basically gas fired today. Yeah. But 
penalty exists for anything we burn for gas fired. So how do you get rid of CO2? Well, you can sequester it. That's one way. However, that's maybe not long-term the best method forward. But at the same time, as I'm looking here in in the studio, there's plants all around. But guess what? Plants love CO2. Mm -hmm. So why not put a greenhouse all around basically Joliet and pump your CO2 in and create a greenhouse? Mm -hmm. And if you would have told me that three years ago, I would have said, (laughs) what mushrooms are you eating? (laughs) And, you know, is this on a bar napkin someplace? Show me that bar napkin. (laughs) But the reality is they did say and brought forward, Greg, there is an idea about can we put a greenhouse on top of a roof? And I actually said, let's talk. Yeah. Because it does truly use your CO2. Now, you asked what's out there. Are we going to do that? I, I don't know that we're doing that. But we need to turn over every rock. We need to challenge the normal circumstances today. And we need to look at where technology has taken us to understand what our options are. So what does the next three, four years look like? I've got potentially an idea but I wouldn't be surprised that it doesn't change in six months as new technology comes forward. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And I'll tell you, if I can just add to that, what's kind of refreshing, you have, you know, a guy walks into a bar scenario, you know, here walks in a, uh, the, the, the head of manufacturing for engineering and the environmental person, which is, which is a great, you know, a combination because the thing is, is that environmental team is not leading we've got in control is manufacturing engineering. They know the scope, they know what they need to do, and they're in charge of it, and we're working with them to make it happen. So it really becomes more of of a group exercise versus us pushing something to try to yeah. get something. Hey, listen to us. Please listen to us. Please, we've got to do this. Now it's it's more of a collective exercise, and I think it's going to work out really wonderfully. Yeah. You know? Well, and that's where the technical exec- or the tactical execution of these ideas truly live. I agree that I think we understand how to get there. We we understand one or two roadmaps. There might be a thousand roadmaps to get there. We've anchored a couple. The other thing that's interesting is not every plant is the same. So, you know, if you take a new plant, of course, they've got new equipment. All their infrastructure is newer. If you take an old plant, it may be 50, 70-year-old infrastructure. I can do something in an old plant to simply improve it. And if you think about that, if you buy an old house and it's got a direct gas-fired furnace that's only 70% efficient, Mm -hmm. and you put in a new furnace that's 90-some percent efficient, you save money. You reduce your CO2. So there's things that we can do that's, I guess, step by step, and not every roadmap is going to look the same for every plant. They're all going to be unique. Our approach to all of them is going to be catered to what makes that plant unique. And at the same time, I feel good about the fact that we're able to align on the approach. And secondly, we have leadership at the executive level that supports where we're heading. Well, it ties it all together, right? Because people see the E8 commitment, and we talk about that being the global sustainability commitment. It's very holistic in each of its different things, but I think you know, energy and ecology are where that circle starts, yep. right? And those are these baseline scope one, scope two things that we talk about today, where it's making an impact. And then, Greg, when you, you mentioned Enlighten, right? I think a lot of people will think of it as the product or the technology sure. in the product, but as you know, our leaders have explained, it's also the operations under every step of 
making the product, the green and the smart manufacturing Correct. all ties into that, right? So great to hear from you both on the perspective. I mean, it, it's a timely topic. We've got Earth Day in late April and we're celebrating Sustainable Business Week at the company and of course, continuing on this E8 commitment journey. So thank you so much for taking the time, for continuing the effort in these spaces. Uh, Greg, appreciate you joining us. And Nick, thanks for coming by as well. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. Often in these types of initiatives, it's the environmental team that has to do a lot of the pushing or pulling, but you can truly see that this relationship has evolved at Bridgestone to be a genuine collaboration between two sides who share big ideas, push creative boundaries, and are aligned in fulfilling our global sustainability commitments. If you like this chat, be sure to listen to some of our other conversations wherever it is you listen to podcasts. Remember, you can also watch episodes if you'd like to on our Bridgestone America's YouTube page. And wherever it is that you hear us or see us, feel free to give us a rating or a review to tell us how we're doing. And you can always send a question or some feedback via email to thrivepodcast at bfusa.com. Thanks for listening. I'm Keith Colley, telling you to keep on keeping on. And remember that at Bridgestone, today, tomorrow, together, we thrive. Be good, everybody.